0: Hello, hello. Leah Pika here. Today's guest is helping data analysts and marketers heat up their insights impact by making their data visualizations extra cool. Stay tuned to find out who's chilling with me on the present beyond measure show episode 76.
1: Welcome to the present beyond measure show a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika.
0: Hello, my dear listener, and welcome to the 76th episode of the Present Beyond Measure show, the only podcast still at the intersection of presentation data visualization, storytelling, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights and ideas. Today's interview is packed with data visualization and design goodies from an amazing educator and fellow author in the data space. So be sure to stay tuned in. But before we dive in, I have just a few updates for you. Now, as usual. I am super excited for today's guest, but in particular, this author and trainer utilizes well-conceptualized frameworks and clear step-by-step processes to evaluate your data viz effectiveness. And I do love me some frameworks and processes. So let's go. Hello. Today's guest is a data visualization design expert, author of the book, Cool Infographics, Effective Communication with Data Visualization and Design, the organizer of the Dallas-Fort Worth and Austin DataViz Meetup Groups, coordinator of Global DataViz Meetup Groups, and a real contributor to the field of data visualization, He has spoken at global conferences, worldwide, so many places, and I've been so excited to have him on the show for today after years of following his work. So please help me welcome today's guest, Randy Crum. Hello. Hello,
1: Leo. Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) It's my pleasure. So this isn't your first rodeo when it comes to talking about data viz. That's the general sense that I get about your background and experience, (laughs) But first, before we get started, everyone loves an origin story, and this show is very much about storytelling. So would you like to share how you fell into this magical and mystical world of data viz?
1: Sure. And it's a long road, because as (laughs) you are well aware, there isn't like a clear path for people to just get into data visualization. My degree is in mechanical engineering. So I started in the engineering field and in operations for consumer product companies and did that for about 15 years. And that's really where I got started with data visualization, really working with consumer research and operations data. We would get 150-page reports with 100 bar charts in them, and we were trying to figure out how do we make sense of this data. And so that's how I started trying to figure out how can I visualize this better, how can I communicate this internally better, mm. and stuff like that. And so I did that for a, a long time. In two thousand and seven. I started the Cool Infographics website, and it was really just a test to try and figure out how blogs worked, because blogs were a new thing (laughs) at the time. And I was keeping all these links just for my own little inspiration of data visualization that I liked. And I just sort of started using that as the posts that I would put on Cool Infographics. And so I was running that just to sort of figure it out before... I wanted to launch a company blog because so I wanted to see like what kind of views you would get, what kind of analytics you could get, what kind of interaction you could get with the audience on the blog. And pretty quickly, and it was really surprising, the cool infographic site started getting more traffic than the company website was getting.
0: Uh, that's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so I kept it going. I mean, I never intended it for it to go for more than like six months. It was not meant to be a long time wow. thing. Wow,
0: Little experiment.
1: And so at the time, I was VP of product marketing, and so I had a full-time job, and people started sending me notes going, would you do design work for me? And I was like, um, no, I've got other work that I'm doing. And so it was only later in, uh, probably five years later, when I was in between jobs, when I started to think, oh, I could do a couple while I'm job hunting, and mm. just take on a couple of these design roles. And pretty quickly, I was doing more design work than I was job hunting work. Wow and talking about data visualization and that sort of thing. And so I formed InfoNute instead of taking on a new role and have been running InfoNute since 2010, so for 12 years now.
0: Wow, what a story. So thank you, everyone who did not hire Randy, because (laughs) 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 now we have your brilliance in the world. It is such a winding road. That's what I find. There is no real direct path. And I think it, it arises where... Data is like a mystery that yearns to be solved. And when we fall into a way of seeing how it can be done visually, it just really lights a spark in so many of us. So that's really fantastic. I think
1: it's interesting. I mean, that was 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago was my career path development. But even today, there's not a really good career path to get into being a data visualization designer, right? (laughs) It's not a clear like education and degree path. It's pretty scattered even today.
0: Well, you know, one reason might be that it's not a clear career path. Where in college, it's there were very discrete buckets and roles of lawyer, doctor, mm-hmm. politician, <laughs> things, poli sci or philosophy, right? But with DataViz, I think it, it's something that arises from doing the work of data and then hitting your head against the wall many times when people don't understand what you're trying to say. And then you discover DataViz principles to help you with that path. So it's it's not really clear what DataViz is going to lead you to doing. I think at the outset of the career, it's more like the solution that helps you do what you want to do better. But that's a great point. So one of the things that really draws me to your work is you have this very direct way of saying there are these deadly sins of data viz design and (laughs) these are these things that you don't do. So (laughs) I like it. I like the directness. So what I wanted to start with was you have two reasons why most charts suck. (laughs) I just love the subtleness. Most
1: charts in the world suck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have the bravery to say it, but there it is.
1: (laughs) Yep. And so I talk about two main reasons why I think most charts just suck. The one is what I call the tyranny of the default. And what Mm, I mean by that is most people, when they are building a chart, and it could be in Office, it could be in Tableau, it could be in whatever application they're using, they'll hit the chart button and then they think they're done, right? Whatever the default settings were for the chart, the (sighs) user thinks, oh, that must be what a good chart looks like right? <laughs> and all the, the software application companies, what they're doing is they're trying to show you in their defaults. here's everything that a chart can do, right? Here are all the grid lines. Here's the chart legend. Here's every color and for every data series. Here's all the data labels and the title, you know, everything we can put in a chart. And it's not that they think that's a great chart design. It's they're trying to make sure that they showcase all of their features. And so mm. it's this basically this headbutt between the two. And you really need to take the time to customize the defaults so that your chart is telling the story or highlighting the insight or whatever it is because you want it to be relevant to the data you're presenting. You know, Microsoft doesn't have any idea what data you're going to bring to the table. You know, they're just trying to show you here's what we can do. Mm -hmm. And so that's the tyranny of the default. People hit chart, you know, hit bar chart and I'm done. And not only (laughs) does it just accept all the defaults, now all of my charts look the same because I do the same thing for every chart I make
0: right this is a really this is one of the key points i teach as well i think sometimes there's this assumption that all data viz tools and platforms have taken into account best practices for data viz design so one tool in particular will put like a bar gap a gap width between bars and mm-hmm. a chart the default is like 187 percent which seems very scientific But it's way too big, which is huge. (laughs) (laughs) You get these like very scrawny looking bars, and you think to yourself, like, well, they must have built that in, and and that was really what the data viz journey showed me was that I really had to take responsibility for making intentional choices with these tools. So one of my key teaching points is I say, please don't let your data viz defaults decide what matters to your decision makers. Absolutely, you don't know what's gonna jump out at them just from different colors and all of the extra markings and things like that. So what else, what's another reason why they suck?
1: So the other one, so that's the first reason that most charts suck, right? The other one is that data visualization is a tool, right? And we use the tool of data visualization for different reasons, for different purposes. Mm -hmm. And the two that are very different are discovery and communication. So if you Hmm, are an analyst, if you are, you know, a product manager, if you're someone just trying to look at the data and figure out what's going on in the data, you're trying to find an insight, a trend, an outlier, you know, whatever it is, you're just using data visualization to try and help figure out what's going on in the data. Mm-hmm. You really don't care what your charts look like, right? It's just for you. You may even take the same data and visualize it 3, 4, 5 different ways cuz you're you're trying to find out what's going on, but then you find something Right. And now you've got to take that insight and communicate it to somebody else. Right. And it might be your coworkers, it might be your boss, you know, it might be your customer, whatever. The mistake is you don't take this chart that you were just messing around with for yourself <laughs> and turn it around and think somebody else is going to understand it. Cause you've spent hours with that data. You are really closely tied to that data. You understand what's going on, but it's complete gibberish to somebody else. Right. 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 To communicate with data, you have to design your chart very differently. So that it highlights what you want it to communicate and that it gets rid of a lot of the cruft and a lot of the extra stuff that's unnecessary because it wasn't part of the insight. It wasn't part of the highlight and that sort of Mm. thing. And that's the big mistake people make is they'll take, Hey, I found this. And sometimes they get really excited and want to show it right away. Right. And so they'll just take exactly what they did for themselves and try and communicate with that. And it falls flat.
0: This is an excellent, excellent. It's like we're have the same brain. Excellent point. (laughs) Because I always think of it as a language that people speak, where we go in a presentation and we're all speaking English, but our charts and slides and visualizations are not necessarily speaking the same language. Just because we might be able to find a nugget of data in a tree map or a merimekko or something Mm -hmm. new and complex doesn't mean that our audience is versed in that language but we'll go in there and present and we'll show it all at once and have like sort of vague conclusions that we've made about it and be like, see, see, (laughs) and they can't (laughs) because you're literally speaking a different language visually. Right. So, yeah. So what's something that practitioners can do to make that distinction more effectively?
1: The distinction between discovery and communication.
0: Yeah. Are there certain charts that you say reserve these for communication, reserve these for discovery guidelines like that?
1: Yeah. So a big part of the job of a data visualization designer is to simplify what's being shown to the audience, right? And Mm -hmm. I say it's only a part of what they do. Because sometimes you have to put stuff into the chart. You have to add context. You have to add call outs. You have to add comparisons and stuff like that. But sometimes you have to take stuff out. Take out Any text that's unnecessary, even data that's unnecessary, any lines that you don't need, just remove anything that is distracting from the insight that you're trying to communicate with your data. Mm -hmm. And when you're just doing it for yourself for discovery, you don't care about any of that, right? You're going to have a whole bunch of grid lines. You're going to have the chart legend. The first thing I always look at is, can I get rid of the chart legend?
0: (laughs) Because the chart legend (laughs)
1: actually makes your chart harder for your audience to understand because they have to look off your chart to figure out what the color red means and what the color green means and what the color blue means, and then look back on your chart and find it. If you can move that information into the chart itself and make it part of the field of view, that makes it so much easier for your audience to understand. But it's a process to do that. And it's something that you do to try and make that chart be better at communicating versus just, I'm just looking at at data visualizations to understand the data.
0: Yes, completely agreed. We don't realize that again, these very basic defaults actually create extra work for our audience. And just because it exists there doesn't mean it's actually a good idea.
1: <laughs> the, the other big one is color. Yeah. Every default that I've ever seen uses categorical colors for the default charts. So mm. every data series is going to be a different color. You know, every line a different color. Every bar series is a different color. But in communication, you want to highlight your insight in a color. That's right. And if you can, I try and put everything else in shades of gray Mm -hmm. so that it's in the background, it's there for context and for reference, but the color that's on the page is what I want you to look at and what I want to draw your attention. So I don't want every data series to be a different color. And so that's one of the biggest things I do to charts is to try and minimize what color's on there because it's just all this noise that the audience is looking at.
0: Yeah. I know you're right because the defaults I used to select were just like Skittles, taste the rainbow kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think Google Sheets or Slides was the first tool I saw actually encode an entire bar graph in one color. And I was like, oh, oh someone's listening. Look and then that. I <laughs> saw that follow suit in other defaults and <laughs> other tools as well. So I think things like that are actually starting to shift a bit, which is a really good sign. And yet I think it's still critical to Not rely on the defaults of any tool to really have a grasp of these fundamentals when you are designing so that you can do it correctly in any tool, right?
1: Yeah, and I can't go so far as to say don't use the defaults because you have to start somewhere. You have to use (laughs) the company template (laughs) or the built-in template, but there has to be a starting point. So you have to use a template or a default, but don't stop there.
0: Exactly. Start there, but build on it, right? And adjust it. What else? What are some other reasons or sins of database design that come to mind?
1: One of the biggest ones that I struggle with, it happens in infographics, it happens in news stories, it happens in PowerPoint slides all the time, is that people just like to make the numbers big.
0: <laughs> I, know this, I know
1: this is a big thing in dashboards. Oh, I do. Um, this. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to tell designers and in the class all the time that the big fonts are not data visualizations. Making the data number value really large on the page doesn't help your audience understand the context or the meaning behind that value at all. Hmm. And the the issue is if you just throw a number out at your audience, everyone in the audience is going to compare that to something they already know. And as the designer, you've lost control of how that story is going to go because everyone's going to be different. The one I like to use is I think it's 3.6 billion users on the internet right now. Right. And I could just mm-hmm. throw that number out there. And everybody who sees or hears that number is going to compare a 3.6 billion to something they know. And to some, that's going to sound <laughs> okay. like a really big number. To some, that's going to sound like a small number. It depends on what you were working on an hour oh, ago. Oh, I see. And you have no mm. idea what your audience is thinking. Is that a big number? Is it whatever? But as uh. a designer for communication... I want to give you some context. I want to tell you why am I telling you this number and what's important about this number. Mm. Do I want to compare it to the 7 billion, which is the total population of the planet, right? Mm -hmm. And so that gives you some context. Or is it the 340 million, which is the total population of the US, right? There's some context that I as the designer can provide. And then that starts to help frame the story and lead to the insight as to, okay, why am I sharing this number? And why is it important to say the business conversation or, you know, whatever that insight is valuable for?
0: Mm. So I want to explore this a little bit further because uh, a number of presentation experts, leaders in the field advocate for the use of sometimes large numbers to make more of a statement, like a Mm -hmm. statement about something. And what they'll do is combine that large number with a very relevant, powerful visual to sort of at least provide content context, if that makes sense. What I think I'm hearing you say is the problem is, is that there's no benchmark, common benchmark that everyone is comparing that to. So you don't actually know what the impact is going to be of that number because it's not being represented visually in some way. Is that the idea? Right.
1: Okay. So in a presentation, a large font, bold font will bring attention to a number, but Mm -hmm. it should be, or I'm advocating that it should be (laughs) shown in conjunction with some sort of data visualization, right? Some sort of visual that shows you, is this number going up? Is it going down? is this a big deal to the company or is this a small deal? Compare this to our competitors or to last year or to the industry standard. Mm -hmm. How should I frame this number? Not just here's a really big number on top of next to an icon (laughs) or next to a photo that's the the same product or concept or category, but it's still not giving you any data context.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, to take it further, what about a percentage? Because percentages have a sort of benchmark built in to them, like a relativity.
1: They do. So a percentage is always in comparison to 100.
0: Right. 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 So if
1: I tell you 36%, you know that's in comparison to 100. Mm-hmm. They work a little bit better, but again, you still don't know if I tell you, okay, well, 36% of residents recycle. You know, is that a good number? Is that, are we doing great? Is it going up? Is it going down? Some of the best things I've seen for like a dashboard, you might have your big KPI number and then yeah. right next to it have a spark line. Yeah. So that you can see the trend that, oh, that number has been going up for, you know, three quarters in a row or something like that, you know, and you see some reference that, hey, this not only is it 36%, but it's continuing on the trend that's upward.
0: So it's kind of the so what part, you know, not mm-hmm. just dropping a number for the sake of dropping a fancy sounding number, but why am I actually sharing this with you? Right. I and see. it goes
1: back to what you mentioned earlier. If I just tell you the number and everybody is interpreting it on their own, yeah, they're not going to all come to the same conclusion. We're not all looking at the chart <laughs> the same way or just looking at the number the same way and walking right. away with the same story.
0: Wow. That is really, really powerful. I like that one a lot. And you know, you talked about discovery versus communication data viz. And one of the things you had mentioned in some of your content was how to break out of the big three. So you talked about the pie, the bar, and the line. And I know from working with Duarte, they actually say like, these are the three most common visualizations used in executive decision-making presentations because they are universal. People understand them if they're done well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So when should... Practitioners break out of the big three, and what would you suggest as some of the ones they move on to next?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would. I wish I could find data behind this, but I would say far and away, <laughs> most of the data totally in the is world fine. is visualized <laughs> in one of those three weights, right bar charts, pie charts, or line charts. Yep, and they are extremely effective when designed well. Right? right, they can be extremely effective. My issue when I talk about breaking out of the big three is when people use them repetitively. Mm-hmm. So, if you are giving a PowerPoint presentation and you're going to show 20 bar charts, right? Yeah. Your audience goes numb and they can't <laughs> remember what was bar chart three compared to bar chart seven. You know, I mentioned when I was doing consumer research for the consumer product companies, we would do, you know, a big segmentation study and we would get this printed report that we paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to go do all this research for. And there were 150 bar charts in there, all the same color oh. scheme. All the same size, (laughs) all the same gap widths, right? So they all looked identical, but they were all showing different Mm. cuts of the data, uh, different Mm. segments, you know, but it was just the same bar chart over and over and over. And what I really learned in infographics design is that when you go from one section of the story or the infographic to the next, if you can change how you're visualizing the data, so change from a bar chart to a line chart to a tree map to a Sankey diagram, to just some other way to visualize the data, your audience instantly understands that they're now moving to a different set of data. They're moving to something that's different. It's not another cut of the same data. Mm. And so my point about breaking out of the big three is to help your audience understand that was sales data and now we're looking at consumer data. Visualize it differently. Don't visualize it exactly the same as you visualize the sales data. So that your audience knows intuitively when they see it, it looks different. It's going to be different. This is a different set of data.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. So do you have like a guideline of how not to oversaturate with a certain kind or like change it every three charts? Or is it just sort of natural? I
1: mean, yeah, there's no guideline. I would keep it topic related. So if you're, Mm. you know, say you've got a handful of slides that are going to be related to the sales data, you know, you want to keep that language consistent. You don't want to confuse your audience.
0: Yeah. Right. So (laughs) keep
1: those consistent. But then as soon as you're now changing to, oh, now we're going to talk about our website and talk about web analytics, you know, change it up, change the color, change the chart style, change something so they know that this is now a different section of the presentation and a different Uh set of data.
0: Oh, okay. Interesting. So actually using different emphasis and some design choices to And this is where I'll pull up,
1: you know, the chart choosers, right? And go to one yeah. of the, the chart chooser websites or something like that and try and find some inspiration of different ways that you can visualize that same kind of data.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. What else? So you also talked about false visualizations. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question. <laughs> well- yeah,
1: I, I mean, I I get criticized for being too harsh or critic sometimes, but um, oh,
0: all right, we'll end on for, a high note. Visualizations
1: <laughs> and sometimes are just you know they deserve it, or when the data is great, but the data visualization doesn't actually match the data.
0: Oh yeah, okay, right. So, I so think the I bars aren't the right heights,
1: <laughs> right, or something like that. you right. So the biggest one that I end up talking about a lot, and that I ended up creating a a reference guide that I put on the website is circle sizes. Because hmm. I've done circle sizes so often, I can look at someone's design and go, yep, they messed those up. Oh, so, all wow. the data is great, but the circle sizes are wrong. And the reason when you size shapes, circles, squares, whatever, to be proportional to your data, hmm. what we see is the audience is the area of that space on the screen or on the page or whatever. But all the software out there, when you draw a circle in Adobe or PowerPoint or whatever, it's asking you for the width and the height, mm, okay. not the area of the circle. So mm. if I'm trying to make one circle three times larger than the other, what they do is they triple the width and they triple the, the height uh-huh. and they end up making a circle that's nine times larger instead of three times larger. Right. right. And so now it's a false visualization. So now they have visually overemphasized the data and it, not, it doesn't actually match the data that's being shown.
0: Yeah, I think people don't realize how precarious circles are in general when it comes to visualization. It's one of the reasons why pie charts can go so awry because people are using them to communicate a full composition where you should be able to understand what each piece is. But that's not actually a story necessarily. It's mm-hmm. really best as a contrast visualization where you're using kind of a different color and spatial just general visual space to show how much bigger or smaller the contrast between pieces, because we're just not really wired to properly assess what's going on in a circle or compare them to each other, especially like when it comes right. to width and height, right?
1: Right. So there is a scale of visual perception oh, okay. that I first pulled out of Alberto Cairo's book.
0: Oh, great.
1: And he has talked about this in a couple of his books now. And the original research came from I think AT and T Labs.
0: Oh, great! And so he
1: talks about that things like bar charts are at the very top of this scale, and so in a bar chart you can follow the grid lines over to the axes, and you can pretty much determine pretty precisely as the reader of this chart what those values are. Right. And somewhere down in the middle of the scale you start getting into pie charts, right? Pie charts, circle sizes, tree maps, Sankey diagrams, things that are sized to be proportional to the values. I can tell some things are bigger or smaller, but I can't tell mm-hmm. by how much. We just don't have that capability to say, yeah, that's 17% smaller.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. We aren't built to be able to do that. So you're just getting a general idea of some values are higher and some values are smaller. And then at the very bottom of this scale are color saturation. Uh-huh. That green is darker than that green, but is it 20% darker? Is it 30% oh, darker? Is it 40% point. darker?
0: That's a really right. good It's point. at
1: the very, very bottom of this scale. And there are reasons to visualize data in different areas. You don't always have to be hyper precise. Right. Like bar charts, sometimes you're just looking for a general idea of population density across a state. You mm-hmm. don't need to be it's 17,453,721. <laughs> you know, it doesn't need to be that much. A color scale would give you enough of a general impression of population density across right. the state. And so you got to pick the right kind of charts that are on that scale somewhere.
0: I think what this always comes back to is what are you trying to accomplish? What is the intention behind Mm -hmm. what you're trying to do? You can use that color scale as long as you can walk your audience through to the same conclusion. The whole point is that you want to get them to the same conclusion that you have come to about the data, hopefully accurately. And this is what I see over and over again. When I think of a false visualization, one of the things that I see often is I'll see a chart on a slide communicating some set of data, and then I'll see an observation title. So I prefer to write my observation in the title of each slide because it helps push the narrative forward when I move through. But what I'll see is the observation doesn't match the chart or the visualization, it will be referencing (laughs) some data that is nowhere to be found because the practitioner, which is very common, I used to do this, the practitioner, we have the context and we are close and living inside of the data. So we've made these connections, but we don't often realize that when we're sharing our observations or insights, the chart does nothing to reinforce or corroborate the statement we've just made in our little data court of law, right? So that's one of the things that I see disconnects between what we're trying to communicate, the story, and then how we are supporting the story visually.
1: The chart is supposed to be the proof.
0: Right. (laughs) Not the statement. (laughs) Right. Right. That's a great point. Any other sins that you can think of off the top of your head or, I mean, this is a good list right here. Oh, I have so many. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe what we'll move on to actually, because you talk about storytelling with one of my favorite phrases, which is a data story arc. This is one of my favorite parts of storytelling. And you talk about it using it in different kinds of data elements. You know, you have a single chart in presentations and reports and in infographics, which are all different, you know, overlapping, but different environments, right? So I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Yeah. So when you tell a story with data, like narrative stories have an arc, a data story has its own arc. And so I have this data story arc that I teach in my classes that starts with, you've got this setup of the data, like what kind of data are we talking about? Why are we even here? You know, this very background kind of information. You lead up to a problem, which in a narrative story would be called the conflict. But we have the problem in our data, which is somebody asked you a question, like an executive asked a question, or something happened Mm -hmm. on the website. And so you're now looking at the data to figure out what happened. Something created this problem that you're now thinking data can now solve this problem or answer this Mm -hmm. question.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Then you get up to the climax of the story. This is the you've now found your insight, your aha moment, or whatever right? That's the climax of the story is, hey, we've answered the question. We've solved the problem with data. And then the conclusion of the story is, so what? What are we going to do with it as <laughs> a business or whatever? You know, it's, It could be a recommendation for the business. It could be some changes that you're going to make to a policy or a procedure or to the website or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just whatever action you're going to do because you found this answer in the data. And so that's sort of the data story arc. And the way you frame a story is very different if someone came to you and said, hey, we need you to create a chart to put in the presentation, and that's all you have. You just have a chart, and somehow you've got to tell a story with that chart versus designing a full infographic where you can have multiple steps of data and lead your audience from step one to step two to step three, and finally to the big insight in step four, you've got a lot more room to work your audience through a story. Or if you're actually delivering the presentation, you can spread the story over four or five slides or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so there are different ways you want to approach the story. So if it's just a chart, one thing I push, and we go back to using colors, is that if it's expenses throughout the year, all the expenses leading up to the current month is that background data. This is like all the things that happened in the past. This is what has happened before. That's the foundational stuff. But your insight, your big reveal is the current month here's our new data this is what i'm now showing you I and mean, you would want to highlight that in some sort of color and then like you i would want to use that title either of the charter or of the slide itself to be the explanation of what the audience should take away from this hey mm. we reduced expenses by 50% last month or something like that not just expense report for february 2022 you know not just an explanation of what the data is but what is the insight you want them to walk away with Right and right. so they sort of walk through that in one slide and that's sort of how you can tell a story in one slide versus using what I call the reveal which is walking them through a couple slides so that you lead them to revealing to them the new data.
0: Oh yes, I call that the slide build. It's such a powerful Yeah. People don't see it as a tool because it lives across a sequence of slides and they don't realize that the arc can actually move across a series and What I love about what you're saying is the way I think about storytelling, especially in presentations, is a series of like Russian nesting dolls where Mm -hmm. you have this overarching arc throughout your entire presentation, but then you have these little baby arcs that go through and substantiate this overarching thesis that you have for the presentation. And hopefully you have one. It's not just a, here's all the data that we have. Hopefully, there is a sort of arc line going through the entire, you know, there's an actual narrative.
1: The funniest thing I keep running into, though, is companies that don't want me to build a story with multiple slides, because that's too <laughs> many slides in the presentation. Oh. So I'll build it all in one. So I'll do it all with animations and builds in one right, slide. Right. And I'll say, oh, <laughs>
0: exactly
1: only one slide. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, if I had to think of a, a deadly sin of data viz or data presentation in general, it's this slide limitation request that comes along. And I think it's a product of people just overstuffing slides in a nonsensical way that doesn't have a narrative or really have a clear story or intention, but then they make a hundred of them. So of course you're like, well, the answer is just to have fewer of them. (laughs) So my brain may survive. (laughs) People
1: assume that you present like they do. Yeah. Right. So if they present right. by talking about one slide for five minutes and they see that you've got a hundred slides <laughs> and they're like, oh <laughs> they're my God, the this rest is going to be afternoon. a two hour presentation. This is going to be crazy. Right. But I go through like three or four slides a minute, right? but you have no idea because I present differently than you do, you know, or whatever.
0: That's exactly right. I think when that begins to change, because at one point someone asked me how many slides I had in a 30 minute keynote and I said, oh, 180. And they were like, what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. That sounds like
0: so much work. And I'm like, not really, because once you start to develop a real paradigm for learning how to use slides to communicate specific ideas at a specific sequence, at a pace that is not sitting on one slide for five minutes, but really the sweet spot of at least one to two per minute, at least, then you really start to keep people's attention going. And then you have no idea that you've shown them many, many more slides, because now it's actually meeting their needs for visual comprehension.
1: The best question I got was when I told them that I had that many slides. They said, well, how do you have time to read everything off the slides?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You can't see it, but I'm doing a giant. I'm not reading anything off the (laughs) slides. Oh, you know, I think Again, what is so important about the work that you do, Randy, that we're doing is we're really illuminating people to these practices and habits and kind of paradigms that I think people are stuck in. They've just been adopted because none of this originated from a model of proper visual communication. It, it originated from people scribbling marker on a transparency and putting it on an overhead projector and then switching that. And that's how this began, right? But I think it's so amazing. And I, I think people don't realize also how simple it is. It's not complex. It's just mm-hmm. a very specific practice and philosophy to follow. I don't know what you think about that.
1: I, I think you're right. I think even when, because I'll date myself, I used to use clear transparencies oh, <laughs> you know, on an overhead projector. <laughs> And there were great ways to do that, too, where you would have them build and lay over top of each other. And you could do that very well, but a lot of people didn't. They'd have 50 of these and they would just go through them one at a time Mm -hmm. and then they'd be out of order and then it would be crazy.
0: Yep. Oh, yeah. So we don't want it to all be doom and gloom, Randy. We also want to know, you have three keys to good data viz. I'd love for you to speak about those. So the first one you have is that it's understood quickly.
1: Yes. So the three things that are you want your data viz to be are, you want it to be understood quickly. So you want someone to be able to look at your chart or your data viz and really within, ideally within a fraction of a second or within a couple seconds, get your point. You don't want them to have to sit there and read it and figure it out and like be going back and forth to the chart legend to figure out what's going on in your chart. You really want them to be able to look at it and go, oh, It's higher than last month. I get it. I'm done. (laughs) I got it. You know, that's what you want. You want them to understand it quickly. The second thing is you want it to be memorable. And by making it visual in the first place, you're tapping into the picture superiority effect. That's right, which we haven't talked about. (laughs) But so, you know, text and audio alone, someone's going to remember only about 10% of the information three days later. But if you can tie your message, your insight into a visual, which can be a chart or a photo of the product or you know whatever, you can tie it into a visual that's relevant to your insight, your audience is now likely to remember up to 65% of the information that you communicated, which is mm-hmm. big because if it's a business communication or any kind of communication, they're probably going to be acting on it later. Right? right. They're going to be making a business decision on this information you're conveying weeks later. Or, you know, you want them to remember what you communicated when they're talking to a vendor or talking to a customer or whatever. Yeah. And making those business decisions. And the last one, so that's two. The third one is actionable. So we're not sharing data just for the sake of sharing data.
0: Right. You actually uh-huh. want to
1: share data because it's going to inform a business decision. It's actually going to be something that someone can act on. Right. We want to. Only buy on Mondays, you know, because of this. We want someone to act on this data. And it could be whatever you want them to do, make a purchase decision, eat healthier, vote a certain way, buy a product, you know, whatever it is that action is, your data should be informing that action.
0: Oh, these are really fantastic. They cover the bases about being memorable. The way I like to think about how powerful visual our, our site is. I think when people say, like, I can't unsee that, <laughs> you know, uh, and a single image can leave a very indelible mark. Right. But no one says, I can't unread that, right? Visual images have such a much more powerful way because that's how we've evolved as human beings for our survival. So really, you're helping your audience survive better <laughs> by by having appropriate visuals. and And the actionable piece is so true. One of my pet peeves, since we're peeving, Is what I call the FYI presentation or FYI readout, which (laughs) is supposed to be for your information, but I call it fake your insights because you're Mm -hmm. trying to just find information to share because there's no clear decision or objective or intention. People just want information. And I think that's a big sand trap that unfortunately both sides, presenter and audience, get caught up in that prevents like more time for analysis work that can actually result in something actionable.
1: That's our monthly update meeting. So i made up some insights because I had to come up with something. <laughs>
0: in the latest news, nothing happened. Yeah.
1: Right. right. All the same.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. So we have entered the segment called The Upgrade, which is a tool, a book, a resource, something fun, exciting, or you think that would be really valuable to the listeners. So uh, what do you got for us?
1: So what I would recommend is for everyone to find their local data visualization meetup group. I don't know if you've talked about meetup groups before. So I run Mm -mm. two meetup groups. I run the one here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and the one in Austin. And there are data viz meetup groups in most of the major cities, not only in the U.S., but across the globe, that have local events. Almost all of them, I think, are free. So this is not something that you have to pay to be a member of. Oh, great. And- they hold, sometimes it's a speaker, sometimes it's a panel, sometimes it's just people that are sharing their work and asking for feedback. Sometimes they have, you know, like the Makeover Monday kind of competition events. Oh,
0: nice. Mm-hmm. And it was a really
1: big thing and obviously much easier to do before the pandemic. And since the pandemic, we've done a huge shift over to virtual events. And so last year in 2021, I started holding what I call global data viz meetup events where since we're doing it online, you no longer have to be in the same city, right? It's online. Anybody can dial in and be a part of the event. And so uh, we're up to 20 data viz meetup groups across the globe, because we have some international as well, that are helping share and promote and host events that people can dial in from anywhere in the world.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think we are talking about one too. So uh, I'm excited about getting involved with that as well. Yeah, that'd be
1: fantastic. We're always looking for more And some of them, when the pandemic started, just sort of stopped. They were going to die because they weren't going to hold meetup events. And so just by providing some online events, Mm -hmm. it's keeping those communities engaged and giving them some content to stay involved as part of the Dataviz community.
0: Absolutely. And that's so great. You know, it's so great to still provide a free resource that practitioners can come, network, learn. I think that's so invaluable as a service to the field, for sure, for people to grow. All right. So we have arrived at our final wild card question. So think very hard here and imagine this very plausible, <laughs> good thinking face. <Chris. laughs> Try to imagine this very plausible scenario. You are running over to keep a souffle from falling during the finals of the culinary fight club competition. When suddenly you trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. If you remember what you're presenting about, what was it? And what advice would you give to your past self? Wow. Go back in that Rolodex. <laughs> <laughs>
1: See, the earliest presentation I remember giving, I'm sure it wasn't there my first presentation, right? <laughs> it was probably in the early 90s when I was doing engineering work, right? So I was in a quality control department. And talk about dating ourselves. I was probably using Harvard Graphics, I think.
0: Oh, nice.
1: If you remember Harvard Graphics, it might have been transparencies. I'm not sure. But it was probably <laughs> uh, statistical process control data, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, what I would probably recommend, and this is good advice for anybody who is starting to present with data or starting to give presentations at all, mm-hmm. is that your demeanor, your confidence as a presenter, impacts how the audience perceives your data.
0: Oh, that's so a good I, one. So talk a lot
1: about data credibility and establishing data credibility in data visualizations and citing your sources and making sure people understand where your data is from and that it's current and valid and stuff like that. But if you're the one presenting the data and you are not good at public speaking and you're very nervous and you come across that way to your audience, it impacts how they perceive the credibility of the data that you're presenting even though the data might be rock solid and fantastic your presentation of the data can hurt it or help it if you come across you know as confident cuz people in the audience will forgive mistakes That's right. I clicked the clicker too fast and I moved on to the the next slide too quickly. No big deal. Back up, or my slides are out of order. Let's skip ahead to this one. You know, they're very quick to forgive mistakes, but they're not as forgiving if you are stumbling and nervous and very uncomfortable presenting your data. It it almost comes across as the data is not good. So you're uncomfortable presenting it, even though that may not be the case.
0: Oh my gosh. I don't know. It's hard to explain. No, I think you are hitting on something so important. This is why the entire fourth phase of my book is all about speaking skills. (laughs) It's one of the only Uh data biz books that's dedicated such a large section to that, because if you come across that you don't trust yourself with your content, with handling mistakes, with handling tough questions, how is the audience going to trust you? So one of the things that I try to teach is, but what if they ask me something I don't know? And I try to tell them, you know, okay, you're not Siri or Alexa or (laughs) Cora. You're not a massive, well, you are a supercomputer, but you can't access everything. You don't know everything. So it's not about having all the answers. It's how do you handle it when you don't have them? How do you handle when you mess up a slide? Do you suddenly become apologetic that you exist? No, you just move back and you're like, oh, whoopsie. You just make it light and here we go. And you don't miss a beat. And it takes practice because this is very, very scary. I think there's a reason why they say public speaking is like the number one fear above death, which I still wonder about that Mm -hmm. data. But still, it's up there. But you just have to have the right tools and mindsets to understand that it really comes down to trusting yourself, I think.
1: right? And it's more than just practice. Because practice, obviously, is is one of the biggest keys, but mm-hmm. you have to be confident with the content. Yes. Right. You have to know the data and be comfortable talking about the data. And if you don't know it, say you don't know it, right? And I'll follow up and give you an answer tomorrow or whatever it is. Don't, exactly. don't pretend like you know everything, but you got to come across like, this is good stuff. I'm here to communicate good stuff. And if the projector doesn't work, that's something different because we're talking about good stuff here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, and even that—how are you going to handle that? I had two projectors and two clickers die on me in one workshop, and you just have to keep oh. going. <laughs> At one point, yeah, I the show must go on. I started researching whether the building was built on like an ancient burial ground of some kind <laughs> with poltergeists, you know. But you just have to keep on, keeping on, right? And practice, but also resolve, and like you said, preparation with content is is crucial. Wow, this is all really good stuff. But unfortunately, Randy, our time has run out. Oh, That went so fast. But please tell the listeners where they can keep up with you.
1: So the easiest place is randycrum.com. That's got links to everything I do. The Cool Infographics website is where I share good designs from all over the world and why I think they're good designs, news from the industry. Mm-hmm. I've got a jobs board there. I've got tools pages with links to all kinds of different tools and data viz reference guides all on the Cool Infographics website. Mm -hmm. And then InfoNewt's my business. And so that's where we do work for clients all over the world, whether it's marketing infographics or presentations and reports for internal use by companies.
0: Very cool. So all of those links and resources are going to be available on the show notes page for this episode. Randy, I had a blast. It feels like we agree on at least one or two things, which is a great (laughs) sign for both of us. But thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for such a huge contribution to this field and creating a network and community of aspiring data viz communicators. Highly recommend your books and I hope our paths cross again soon.
1: Thank you so much, Leah, this was fantastic.
0: All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I had having it. Randy is obviously a critical person to follow in the world of data visualization, and I'm just so glad that we got to share his infinite wisdom with you all. So to catch all of the links, resources, everything you've heard mentioned in this episode, please visit the show notes page at leapekacom slash 076. And if you'd like to connect, don't be shy and reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter and be sure to send a connection invite with a note mentioning the show. I love to meet my listeners and I respond to every message. And I'll leave you with today's presentation inspiration by Edwin Markham. And that is choices are the hinges of destiny. My take, what I'm continuing to learn from practicing conscious data communication is discernment, which means being empowered to make choices that you otherwise may not have known you could make. And what I've observed in this work and how it relates to real life is that the choices we make will create our success story or our failure story. And that's okay too. But the very first step is realizing that you have choices. And that's what this show is always here to help you learn along that journey. That's it for today. Stay well, stay safe, and namaste.